I think like one of the beautiful parts about it is this surrender of like social pressure. It's like, do I find this fun? Hell yeah, I find this really fun. Do I think this guy's gonna call me a nerd for it or a geek or whatever? It's like. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast, a weekly show where we will dive deep into the history, stories, and controversies surrounding the fingerboarding community. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast. I'm your host, Nostalgia FB, and we are excited to be chatting with Jake Waynes of Grain Theory. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on your streaming platform of choice. This show is sponsored by Fingerspace Co., which provides fingerboarding gear for writers of all skill levels and budgets. Thank you for coming on the show, Jake. How are you doing? Dude, I am doing great, and I am so stoked to be on a fingerboarding podcast, man. This is dope. <laughs> man, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people of your following may not know that you fingerboard more than you play Ken, and a lot of people from our following may not know what Ken even is. Yes. So this is going to be an awesome, awesome episode to be able to dive into both. Absolutely, man. Now, the first question we like to ask everybody that comes onto the show is, how did you hear about and get into fingerboarding? It's funny that you asked this because my brother was just recently here and we dug up a bunch of old VHS tapes. For y'all that don't know, VHS is what existed before CDs or DVDs for all the young cats out there. But yeah, we found these old VHS tapes and we were actually able to like dive back into like our youth of like filming skate videos. And in the middle of one of them, like we're skating and then it just cuts and it's just a finger skateboard video on, on like tech decks are like our homemade decks that were just like carved out pieces of wood with nails as trucks. So it made us kind of realize like, dang, we've been doing this for a while. And that was probably the video was from 1999. And that's when I, I was like fingerboarding on tech decks and doing ramps and kickflips and tray flips and onto rails and using it all. So man, I got into fingerboarding, I'll say like 98. Like, when did Tech Tech come out? Like, whenever it first started. Oh, I don't have the... You know what? Internet is here. But off of the top of my head, they came out in the early 2000s. I know they had, like, some competitor... Oh, no. No, you're right. 1998. Yeah, it's 98. Boom. All right. Sweet. I, my brain is more functional than I anticipated. Uh, so, yeah. You were there. All right. I wasn't there. At the time. I, I was there, man. Because me and the friends would skate all the time. And, like, we did all the action sports. We just wanted to BMX. We wanted to inline. And we wanted to skateboard. And then, of course, like, Tech Tech comes out. And with fingerboards, we're like, oh, this is sick. And then our brains just immediately went to ramps. And we just started building skate parks and stuff like that. So... Since then, I was just in it and then kind of drifted out of it. And then I researched back into it. Now I'm re-obsessed. So. What was that like being a skater in the mid to late 90s? I mean, that was one of the golden eras of skateboarding. And then these tiny little things come out. What was, what was your opinion when that happened? Well, like we were like just straight up kids. So like we were still in this infancy of just like, we just wanted to play. So like going back and watching this video, it was wild because like okay. part of it would be skateboarding, then part of it would be inline. And then it was like the homie that BMXed. And then there was like a whole part that was fingerboarding. So it was like, we just wanted to do it all because it was all so sick. This is like whenever like skate videos were coming out and like you had to film your stuff and it was really exciting. And I was lucky enough to have like parents that just like supported everything that like we got into skating and like my dad was like, oh, we can build ramps. And then my brother is like a very engineering mind. He just loves to build stuff. So like I was into filming and fingerboarding and skating and all that. My brother was also into that, but also he was like the main guy behind building all the setups and the ramps. And like, it was just this kind of, it was a family that was kind of built around just supporting each other with whatever our interests might be. And that's kind of like one of the coolest parts about it during that era, like the late nineties was like, this is all new and we were all stoked on it. So it all just kind of sparked an interest amongst the whole family so at what point would you say that you kind of fell off of fingerboarding and at what year did you come back in 
I fell off from fingerboarding probably when I went to university in San Francisco because I just got like more and more into skating. Like I was more and more into inline. Like inline is what kind of took over my life. So I was in Northern California with like the most epic talented rollerbladers of like all time that were from the NorCal scene. And so it just kind of like took a back seat. I was just like every day skating, skating, and I was going to art school out there. The resurgence happened. I, I know the exact moment. I was living in Oakland, California. I'm just on Instagram. And all of a sudden, like, I see this video from, like, what's the Instagram handle? It's called Finger Snacks. Okay. And it was just, like, fingerboarding like I hadn't seen before and kind of presented in a different way. It was, like, a 21 Savage song and, like, mixed with, like, footage of, like, Mario Kart head bopping and, like, just the sickest, like, concrete ramp. And, like, it just had, like, a different vibe to it. And I was like, yo, this fingerboarding's changed and this is dope. So I immediately go online. I'm just, like, searching for fingerboards and I ended up with like a broken knuckle something and then I just started like going in and then I got a Black River ramp and I did the same thing I would always do I'd film tricks and stuff like that so kind of like rekindled my love for it and kind of like saw where it was going now and it's like man you can make this look really cool so and since then I've just been diving deep into the new fingerboarding world I left for a long time and now it's like this whole new world so now, prior to that, did you have any idea and like, did you know that this fingerboarding community or world was an actual thing? Or did you always just think it was like tech decks and mass produced toys? I knew that there was like Black River and like the whole like European squad, but I didn't really know how big it was. It's huge. Like I had no idea how huge it was until I started like diving into it. And it took that one Instagram video and made me like click click and just keep diving into that the fingerboarding hole you know so i had no idea to the level uh that it had risen to and both on like a stylistic both on a like trick vocabulary and also on just like how hard people are going with the products like when i started finding out like there's just specific bushing companies and like dudes that just make trucks and wheels and then i found like joy colt and i was like these guys are going hard with like the urethane wheels and then like yeah it just it just all hit me at once and it was an overload of awesome i guess you could say no that's really really cool i have to ask you just <laughs> just because i think it's a little cheesy but have you tried the the inline finger skates yet i actually have a pair dude like so I... <laughs> but i haven't broken them out of package like homie in japan so we're in japan for a kendama tour he's also an inline skater and a kendama player and he like gifted me this like set of like finger skates and i just thought it was so dope and i'm like these are probably way doper in the package is like just something to look at than actually use so like i'm just gonna like leave them here and it's funny because my daughter always it's in the closet like hanging up and she just points at it and she wants she wants to shred the finger blades and uh i just gotta say no yeah those stay in the package but she shreds there there's some people that take those inline finger skates or like scooters like finger scooters <laughs> and like on tiktok or certain different platforms and they make it look really good that's the hardest part is it's, it's like to take something and like make it look really good. And I think that's what was the ultimate rise, what really enabled fingerboarding to like rise. You can make fingerboarding look as cool or as lame as you want to make it look, you know? The second like people started getting in there with the cameras and like the setups looking real and the obstacles looking real and then presenting them in the coolest possible way. I think that's where people started to see it and be like, oh damn, like this is like moving up and it's starting to become like something really cool that's inspiring, so. Hey, that's what got me back into it. Yeah. It's like, I just knew it from like my own little videos. And then I saw that video of it presented in a different way. And that just researched my passion for it. Awesome. And I'll tell you that it's kind of, it's strange. Have you ever been to, to a fingerboarding event or fingerboarded around a group of people? I have. When I moved here to Illinois, I always wanted to go to a fingerboard event. 
never really could make it out to one. So I just decided like, heck, I'm just going to throw my own. So me and Bonzatron okay. uh, from Chrome Kandama, we both got deep into fingerboarding. And every Kandama event, we would just nerd out in the hotel room and just like play games of skate with the fingerboards. So we're like, dude, like he's going to be in Illinois. He's going to be in Chicago. So like, yo, let's just throw a Dama and fingerboard event and get some cross pollination of people going. So that was my first time. Like that was the way I was able to go. It was like, I got to throw my own event. So I had everybody come out, had a dope rooftop location inside an L train that was like refab with picnic tables. The whole scene brought out like ramps. We had all our ramps and like, we just built up this thing and it was Kandama players and fingerboarding. And then I had this contest that was like, okay, fingerboarders playing Kandama, and Kandama players playing or shredding fingerboards. And it was like, let's just see how it works out. So that was my only experience with an event. Man, that's awesome. And it's similar to my first experience because I've been doing this for 10 years and I got so sick and tired. I mean, I've moved around the country a little bit, but mainly stayed in Vegas of there not being anything happening out here. I'm like, it's Vegas. Why isn't there anything? And then last year we got with the COVID lockdown, finally, when the restrictions opened up a little bit, my sponsor and I, uh, Mescal FBS, we finally threw an event together. And the point that I was trying to make asking you this question was, is that fingerboarding looks awesome and it looks great on film, but kind of like when you get in person, a lot of people don't realize because they see the awesome rendezvous videos or sorry for fingerboarding videos. But once you get there in person, it's really hard to make that stuff look good. You know, it's just a bunch of people hunched over tables just having a good time, but it'll ultimately always be kind of this dorky thing. But that's why it attracts, you know, so many people in my opinion. I think like one of the beautiful parts about it is this surrender of like social pressure. It's like, do I find this fun? Hell yeah, I find this really fun. Do I think this this guy's going to call me a nerd for it or a geek or whatever. It's like, I don't care. It's like, I think that's a big thing with like the skill toy community in general. It's like Kendama players, like we're playing like, oh, is that a ball in a cup? People start reciting like family guy ball in a cup stuff. And it's like, or is that a yo play with yo-yo? It's like, oh, people still play with those. Yeah. It's like this kind of surrender of just honesty to yourself. And just being like, I enjoy this. Like, this is a lot of fun. And just kind of blocking out all the haters and just like going for it. Because for every like one hater, you're going to have like two people or three people that are just as passionate about it you are that's going to like encourage you to dive even deeper and have even more fun with it. And so that's one thing I think that every skill toy can kind of relate to. So that's why it's cool for us to kind of all come together. And again, this is my first fingerboarding podcast. I'm actually kind of nervous. I've done so many Kandama podcasts, man, because I've been doing that for like, oh, well, over 12, 13 years now. But now I'm like, I'm in uncharted territories, man. This is, this is fingerboarding. No, no, I've, never really no, talk, I've never really talked about it too much, <laughs> like on this level. We love to hear everybody's input and, and yours is definitely valuable. And we're going to get into the Kandama side of things here in a little bit. But like <laughs> you mentioned, it's, it's letting go or that lack of social pressure and just not caring because you never realize how many people actually do fingerboard like I, I just met uh, a friend recently who's turned into a really good homie his name is Derek and I'll give him a shout out here because he just got promoted to a sergeant in the Air Force and the man is like a legit fingerboarder and it's like you would never think somebody that's taking care of our freedoms in our country is a fingerboarder at the same time but it's something that anybody and everybody can do absolutely and I think that's another like one of the cool parts about fingerboarding like as far as like it being a game or a sport or whatever you, or a toy or whatever you want to call it, anyone can do it. It has no real limitations. There's no like sports, for instance, you got like football, basketball, baseball. It's like anyone can play it, but to accelerate, like you have to become some like athlete and you got to work like on your athleticism. And but like anybody from any 
where can pick up a fingerboard and have fun with it and excel at it, it's, you it's, know? Go, no, you go ahead. I apologize. I was going to say that I think that's one of the attractions to it, too, is that, like, it's completely universal. I was, I was going to say, I think that's one of the very similar attractions to Kendama, which many people, almost everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. How did you get started in playing Ken? Playing Ken was uh, actually through some homies in San Francisco. Like, because, again, we're skating out there, we're riding our bikes, and all of a sudden, a homie, Matt Rice, had a Kendama and was just like, Yo, check this out. So in between skate sessions, we would just kind of play. It's the same mentality as like skateboarding, blading, fingerboarding, whatever you want. It's like, it's take this object and see how far you can take it, you know? And with a Kendama, once you get that first big cup, you're like, all right, let's see what else we can get. And that feeling of landing a trick hits you in the same way it does with fingerboarding or skateboarding or blading. And so I just immediately got addicted to it. We just kept playing between skate sessions. And then it kind of became like, hey, you want to come over and just play Dama and then it became events that we were throwing in our backyard and it became barbecues and it became tours and it became like in between there was videos and it just kind of snowballed into what it is today but uh yeah it just starts off with a homie saying check this out that's like the most quintessential way to learn about anything is word of mouth that's just what it started with i want to get more into your story and how this progressed over the last like you said 13 years or so but what do you think is with this like harmony or this homogenous inclusiveness with kendama and the skate culture that just works together even though they're so different i would ask you i'm gonna ask you a question i'm gonna flip it on you real quick okay how are they different besides i just thought about that when i was asking the question besides the actual physical of what you're doing the mentality behind it isn't that different the overall way you portray it isn't different it's just the act of doing a different thing but in very similar styles but with a different object absolutely and and that's the thing is like physically they are different but the parts of your brain that they activate are the same it is the accomplishment feeling and that's where i think that that's why it fits so broadly is like the most simple trick on a kendama will give you that accomplishment feeling you know and it's crazy easy to do like a big cup or a spike it's like you can learn how to do that in minutes, you know, but it'll give you that sense of accomplishment feeling. And that feeling will continue on as long as you're progressing. And I think that is why they all work so well together. And I think that with Kendama, again, expands beyond other traditional sports and action sports because there's very low, low risk of bodily harm, just like with fingerboarding. And it also doesn't require any like major like physical fitness requirements you know it's like you can just be in any shape and play this game and have an absolute blast and excel and get that amazing feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction so that's why they work together it just hits that one little part of your brain that makes you go "Mm," and feel good man i'll tell you what it doesn't take a lot of physical fitness or strength to be able to do it, but Kendama definitely helped, or at least helped me with weight loss when I was younger playing it because the fact that it does make you stand up and get active and work for you as you've been doing this for two or three hours, mm-hmm. it gets you moving a lot, a lot Absolutely. more. Absolutely. And that's one of the side effects of it. But like, again, like you're starting out, like playing it in its core level, it doesn't require that. But once you start playing, it can induce that, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I've always said since the beginning, like Kendama can be your hobby. It can be your, your meditation. It can be your exercise. It can be just your social tool. It has so many applications. It can help you with something like weight loss or with getting fit or just like, if you're kind of like socially awkward, like it can help you like make friends, like. I've made so many friends through it because people just are curious, like, what's that? You know, and you can say most people that play it love it and they can't wait to talk. They'll talk your ear off about it. So it's like the second that door opens, it's like, 
boom, I'm in, we're talking, and before you know it, I've got you to big cup it, and now we're homies. Yeah, so. absolutely. The friendships that I made just thinking about it in the past that we can get into in a little bit, it's just awesome. Now for you, getting started, I know you kind of said it went from barbecues and then all this, and kind of went to tours. Can you elaborate a little bit more on kind of the timeline that got you to where you are now? Absolutely. I started playing Kendama in 2008. That's whenever I was introduced to it, started playing, having fun. I was in film school in San Francisco, and again, back to like the skating style is like you just document everything you document all your tricks you film your videos so that was just the natural progression as was like i got in a kendama and i was like i need to film my tricks so we started making kendama edits there were kendama edits out here and there and again like my thing was like yo let's try and present this a little differently we made like more kind of grimy grungy style kendama edits like throughout san francisco with like 35 millimeter lens adapters and film nerd stuff we kind of added like an edge to it and where everyone saw it as kind of a kid's toy, my idea was like, let's let's counter that. So we're going to have these barbecues where we're going to hang out, we're going to have some beers, we're gonna, I, I'm going to provide everything. And we did them once a month. And there was a contest, a battle, which was ridiculous. And, and like at the time, it was like, you're going to have a battle with this like little wooden toy. And it's like, hell yeah, we're going to have a battle with this thing. It's going to be fun. So everybody come over. We'd have these events. And then it just started like growing from there because we would film it. We'd put it online. People would start saying like, yo, how are you throwing these events? I'd send them the formula. And through that's kind of how it started like spreading around the U.S. The concept kind of became like, if you got a backyard in San Francisco and it's all run down, we'll come out in the beginning of the month. We'll do a garden party where we'll actually start gardening and make your place all nice. That's where Ken Garden came from. And then at the end of the month, we'll throw a Kanama battle in it. So we'd make two videos a month. One of them was us cleaning someone's backyard and planting and making sculptures. And I had tons of creative friends, so it was like a lot of fun. And then at the end of the month, we'd throw these events. And so it kind of became this thing where I just felt like it was so fun and so positive. And it was like literally creating a community that I just had to do them every month. So we did it every single month until we ran out of backyards. <laughs> we ran out of homies with trashy backyards. So it kind of became this like session thing that we would do at parks and whatnot. Around 2012 and 2013, it kind of became this tour that we would do up the West Coast. And that was also just the effect of like a tiny little tiny idea of like, I want to drive to this contest in Seattle. I should get two friends to come with me, but I got more friends than two. So we should bring in more people with me. We should rent a van. Let's put decals on the van to make it look really cool. Yo, let's just do a tour. Yo, let's get these sponsors to come in and send us their best players. And next thing you know, I've got like a van full of like 12 of the best Kanawa players in the world or in the US at least. And we're just driving up and we've got stops and we show up in like Portland, Oregon. And there'd be like 70 people coming out of the skate park and like we're skating and we're playing Kandama. And it was just like the dopest vibe. And that's kind of when I realized I was like, this is something. And this is something that really makes people happy. And it needs this presentation. It needs this established presentation of like a tour. And you open the door and there's Colin Sander, the holy god of North American Kandama, popping out saying what's up to people. Yeah, it was that realization as well as how the hell did we pull this off? Like, I have no idea. We just made it happen. I still to this day, I'm like, I have no idea how we did it. If you said it all at once, you're going to do a tour, have all these people. I'd say, I don't know. That's kind of just over my head. But if it started as a small idea and it snowballs into a big idea, you're kind of on your step throughout it. And it doesn't seem that bad. So you just kind of make it happen. And so then from there, sponsored, I became pro, got my pro mod through Kandama USA, got to travel the world through Kandama USA, playing Kandama with people all over the world. It was one of the most amazing times in my life. 
and then wanted to take Kandama and make it like my entire life and like my living. So then I decided to go full in with my brand, Grain Theory. And now I'm here in a home with two kids and a family and I've got a nice life and I'm still in following my dream with toys and all kinds of toys. Like I just like toys. So now here we are. That's an awesome story. It's incredible what you've been able to do and accomplish. Now, before we dive into the inner bellies of Grain Theory and all, all the details there, I want to ask you specifically, because I remember, I don't remember what year it was, if it was 2013 or 2014, or even 2015, but watching the live streams for the Kandama World Cup, which is kind of like the fast fingers equivalent for us fingerboarders, mm -hmm. you know, making it to Germany one day is, you know, the, the biggest goal, but the World Cup for Kandama is in Japan. Yep. And you were the MC yep. and kind of the host of the event. And I thought that was insane. How did that kind of come about? Because that like how much higher can you get in the world of Kendama? <laughs> uh, so I've always enjoyed a microphone, man. I love the mic. Whenever there was a, an event called Dama Fest that was hosted by Kendama USA and they asked me just to MC it. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'll MC this. This sounds like a blast. So I MC'd that, and then the World Cup came around, and they wanted a foreign MC as well. So we've got Nobu, who is an MC professional, MCs for Red Bull, G-Shock, like he is high up there. Then they asked me to MC it. Big breath, and I said yes, <laughs> and again just sent it. I didn't know what to expect. I was nervous, and I just kind of took it as it came. And it was a huge honor. Like I was emotional being asked to MC the World Cup in Heitsukaichi, Japan. Since then, it's just become I am the foreign MC. And then after MCing World Cup. Nobu hosts the Freestyle World Championships, also known as the Catch and Flow Championships in Tokyo. And then I also MC that one with them. So I kind of became the official foreign MC of Kandama. And I think that the real reason why I think I'm like, why did they choose me? You know, it's like they could choose a lot of people. And I think that one of the reasons is I don't have any filter on sharing my passion for this game. I will talk to anyone, everyone, however long as you want me to talk to you until you tell me to shut up, like <laughs> I will talk about Kandama and because I love it that much. And there's so many different things I can tell you about it. And I think that's one of the reasons why they wanted me to do it is just, I feel like that really shows through whenever I talk about the game. Since then, it's just only grown to be a bigger heart for the game. And I hope to get back on the stage again. I've actually chosen kind of like to stay out of the like online emceeing for the World Cups just because uh, online they've got Max who is in Japan as well who is doing an excellent job but I, I really hope to get back on that stage in person holding a mic next to Nobu in front of the whole crew and go for it so that's awesome and I hope one day I'll be able to make it out there too because just looking at it it's just the pinnacle you know never compete I have no interest in that but just being there in the environment dude you can do it man let's set a goal now 2022 I need to see you in Japan let's do it okay All right. we'll make it happen <laughs> let's do it now that you said it I have an incentive <laughs> dude okay so really quick also just to bring it back to like the events earlier that I threw and anyone that's looking to throw events I have a whole like thing behind it and the way I was able to throw these events is um, I mean the easiest person to let down is yourself right if I have a goal and I don't tell anyone about the goal I can can just not do that goal and all of a sudden I'm like ah that sucks but whatever I'll keep going so the way I would actually make these events happen this would be the beginning of the month I would just say Kendama battle and I would choose a weekend and I had no clue where how what I was gonna do and I would just be like all right I now have like 30 people 
that are like stoked and I can't let them down. So I had to like say, okay, I got to make it happen. And yeah, I didn't do some stress, but you make it happen. And so that was the biggest part for me was like putting it out there and saying like, I'm going to make this happen. And you found a way to do it. So anyone that's trying to like do events or wants to set goals for themselves, whether it be going to Japan, like I set that goal for you. So you don't have to do that. One. <laughs> I'm just saying if you want to go to Japan and you need that extra fire to get to World Cup or you want to go to Fast Fingers, you want to go to a rendezvous, just tell the world, put it out there. Tell your friends like, I'll see you at rendezvous, like straight up. And I'm going to be there doing this or doing that. Or I'm going to go to World Cup. Having that little bit of extra fire and that little bit of extra pressure will push you to make it happen. It's how I get anything done. Those are fantastic words of wisdom. Now, do you think any of that applied to your starting of Grain Theory and taking on this as your full-time life? A little bit, yeah. But it was more of a, that was one that was a lot of self-realization. I had to kind of switch up the way I was thinking to kind of push this to the full way. Because in the beginning, like we called it a project. It wasn't even a brand or a company. It was just a project. And then there came a point where I had life goals. I'm like, own a house, have a family. I want two kids, you know? And it's like, I looked at my current situation and I was like, can I make it happen with this? Sadly, I can't. I have to switch it to this and how, and I, I had to just like create a spreadsheet in my mind, which is totally not the way I think. <laughs> so, but I had to do it because I had goals and I had to reach those. It was more of an internalization, realizing what I really, really, really wanted in life. Do I want to be a professional canon player forever? Yeah, totally. But what do I hold higher? Like, do I want to have a family and like, or do I want to like have this title of pro? And it was, all right, I got to do this. So you kind of, kind of have to start filtering out what you really want and finding out like is each move helping you reach your goal your main goal and so i had to make the move and say you know what i'm gonna go full in with grain theory and this is the plan we're gonna stick to it and see where it takes us and i feel like i'm just happy that what we chose <laughs> worked out so what you're saying is very very important and just overall life advice you know, for anybody listening, whatever you want to do, it's setting up your, your whole life around it to make sure that goal gets accomplished. Mm -hmm. And the reality is a lot of things in your everyday life, if you have dreams, can hinder or slow down your progress. I'll give you kind of an extreme example. I'm a cook. That's hey. what I do professionally. I went to culinary school for six years, got my degrees, got all that. That's what I do to keep the lights on, so to speak. And I remember during one of my first internships was out here in Vegas on the strip at a very famous French restaurant. I, I won't say any names for legality reasons, I think. But the chef there, I asked him, I was like, um, how do how do you manage to work 12, 16 hours a day, a family life going and keep a social life going? He's like, you know, one day my wife came up to me and I'm not telling anybody this is the right thing to do. But if you're a passionate and a driven individual, this is what he did. He's like, one day my wife comes up to me and she goes, you know, you work a lot. You know, our relationship is kind of falling apart. You know, the kids miss you. You have to choose. Is it going to be your work? Is it going to be the kitchen or is it going to be me? And this man told me directly to my face when I asked him that question. He goes, and what I told her was, is I had the kitchen before I had you and I'll have the kitchen after you. So this man chose his work and his passion and his drive over his marital relationship. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's the right call, but if there's certain things you want to progress at, there's, there's certain requirements of you to do certain things. But finding that balance, I don't think that man had any balance at all. But there's also being true to yourself. And it's like, yeah. but I will say this, being true to yourself, the prerequisite to being true to yourself is knowing yourself 100%. Yeah. So it's like, if this man like wanted to do that, 
I mean, that's his thing. He did it. And yeah, again, it's finding balance. Like there's no balance in that. I hope this man still maintained a relationship with his kids at least. So, but it's like a big part is just making those decisions and you're going to make some wrong decisions, yeah. you know, in your life. Like that's, that's a given. But I think a big part of it is like having the foresight and having the hindsight to realize what was good, what was bad, what was like wrong, right. And being able to like learn from those. And the biggest part is just making moves. Like you just have to make moves. If you just stagnant and just not making moves, you're gonna stay where you are and decline. But making moves and you might go up, you might go down, but all that matters is that you're making moves. And as long as you're making moves, you're gonna keep moving forward. How long have you been working on Grain Theory? How many years has it been? Oh, man. You started it? I'd say we started it 2000, like started the ideas was in like late 2012. And then our whole goal was to make kendamas in the U.S. and have like just a greater communication with manufacturing. Because at that time, manufacturing in China, they could make the numbers, they could pump out damas, but a large percentage of them didn't meet and didn't match to spec. And so we would just hear these horror stories from like brands across the board of like, man, we had to like trash like 20% of the batch. And so we were like, okay, why? And it's like communication, communication, communication. So like, yo, let's find someone in the US to make it. We can like go there, talk with them and make it happen. So we started looking for, this is like the year process was like started looking for manufacturers, hitting up everybody that we can think of all across the US that did any kind of like wood turning or CNC lathe or routers or whatever we can find. And we got turned down by everybody. No matter how much money we could like raise and like bring to them, just still, no, we're not interested, not, not interested. And then one day my brother, Eric Weens, who also plays Kendama and is an incredible engineer and just the maker mind, like I mentioned at the beginning, maker of all the fingerboard ramps, was like, hey, I bet we can make a Kendama. And so him and his engineering buddies, Craigslist, a CNC lathe that runs on a ThinkPad with Windows 98, and they started cranking out what would be the first GTs in a garage that held a carriage in Chattanooga that was full brick, could barely fit anything in it, and leaking water. It was like the quintessential, like, from the bottom. <laughs> so, and then that evolved into RWB, which was their manufacturing, and then we were GT, and we worked together for a number of years. That's kind of how we got it started. And then in November of 2013, we released our first batch. It went crazy. We couldn't believe the response. And then since then, it's just been figuring out like how to, how to, we're two art school majors, man. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been over seven years of us just trying to figure it out, you yeah. know? And I feel like there's a lot of that also in the fingerboarding world, as far as like making decks and like making ramps. Like I see people like running their own business, doing their own marketing. And it's like, all these homies are just figuring it out, you know? That is so, really it. Just try and figure it out as you go, honestly. Absolutely, man. And like, and you'll figure it out. Even if figuring it out is saying, this isn't for me. Yeah. You know, that's still figuring it out. You're figuring yourself out. You're saying you could try it and say, nah, this isn't for me. I was going to be making music videos my whole life and like doing, I was going to be moving towards Hollywood, doing ads and commercials. I have a degree in cinematography, editing, directing. And my big switch was like, instead of doing videos for other people's products and promoting them, it's like, I'll just have my own products and then I'll make my own videos for my own products and promote those. So I'm still using all of my classical training and I'm learning some new stuff. 
So that's kind of where it landed me here. Man, that's awesome. And I'll tell you, I remember very early on for Grain Theory, like the videos or like the promos that you guys would do of like actually seeing the lathe turning and like the actual shaping of the kendama coming out of these wooden blocks. It was like the first time the community has ever or ever saw that process because what something that, especially in fingerboarding, a lot of people don't like to talk about is that a lot of big companies get their stuff produced and manufactured overseas, mm -hmm. whether it's in Russia or in China and all that. But seeing that for the first time, that kind of put Grain Theory, at least, because when Grain Theory started is kind of when I started, put it on a pedestal of like the most artisanal, handmade, highest quality that you mm -hmm. can get. And I think that was reflected in the actual craftsmanship that showed when these were made. Absolutely. And that still holds true. Like we still have our U.S. manufacturing with the same machines. It's run by some different people now. There's different people operating the machines, but it's still that soul of like, yo, we're doing this and we're making these on this certain level. And I feel like that passion kind of shows through that product. I will also say that like Grain Theory couldn't supply me with what I need to have this and like be able to say I'm full-time Kandama if I just made stuff in the U.S. So that's where it's like, and that was this big shift was like, we need to offer like both sides. Like, yes, our Kandamas cost $100 and here's why. But also we can't even make enough of them. Like we sell out always. And uh, that's just because they're made in small batches to a certain standard. And so then we decided to make a shape with China which has their own set of incredible skills, like from the design to the paint to how many they can crank out and to their wood species and all that. So we're able to kind of have both sides of that coin there. And we're able to offer like, this is like the Steph Lucier mod that has like this incredible pearl paint with like this pattern design, incredible laser work. And it's just, we have this available for $45. Or we also have an American-made BH that's made to absolute precision that's available for $100. And this one, I have a Chinese-made Tama on that we just released for $25. So it's like you can yeah. build your own setup, but it's like it's having all of those options there to fit what you want. You know, like you might not have any interest in precision. You just want a Tama that you can like beat to heck and just like throw on the ground and shred. Yeah. We got that. You might want to feel what it's like to hold the crispiness of an American-made piece of artisanal wood that's made to shred as well that is like just held to a higher degree of standard you might want to feel that and you can feel it and so we have something for everybody that's been the goal that is a fantastic way to look at it and i wish the fingerboarding community so to speak would look at this that way as well because there's such a the china gear so to speak there's such a negative connotation that comes with that from the fingerboarding aspect because I don't even know where it started from or stemmed from but people are mad at China gear and it's like you mm -hmm. I don't think it's just little kids and people talking smack they don't realize the overhead and what you can save getting this stuff manufactured elsewhere to actually keep a price point down and try and give you a deal I think fingerboarding needs to figure out China deals like fingerboarding needs to figure out to me there needs to be a 30 a $35 complete setup that is super shreddable because coming from the Kendama world, like I'll post a fingerboarding clip. Someone's like, yo, fingerboarding looks tight. I want to get into it. Where can I get a cool deck? And it's like, or we're going to get a setup and it's like, okay, well, and this is before I really started getting it like, and then, and it was like, okay, you get the deck for this much and you got to get these wheels and you got to get the trucks and you're like in a hundred dollars, you know, you're already in the GT realm of 
fingerboarding. And then the alternate would be like getting like the Amazon boards that like they're just not there yet. You know, it's not what I would suggest someone starting off with. And then some brands like Kim's makes a really good like starter complete for like $45. And so I started pointing people yeah. to there. And there was a brand called Mongo that would also was, was also doing like $45 completes. I'm sure there's more. But even that for some people is like kind of a push. So if someone can figure out like just a super core level, you'll just it, it'll just expand the fingerboarding realm and take someone from like, I don't know, to like, oh, duh, cop. And they'll have that intro into fingerboarding because the other thing that people might think was like, oh, if someone can get a sick deck for $30 or complete for 30 or 20 or however much money, like they'll never buy like a sick handmade deck with like, or like dope wheels or like BRTs. And yeah, I call BS on that, man. You get into it, you're gonna want it, man. You're gonna want it. And it's not even a thing. And just having that introductory level that allows you to actually experience fingerboarding and experience little flexi trucks and the wheels that spin forever and that good rip tape on top and a third up to a 34 millimeter deck, like give you that experience and then opens your eyes to like this this nostalgia fb has the dopest like middle ply here that yeah sends you crazy which this is the most beautiful ply i've ever seen on the fingerboard by the way so i think that's another part of it is like how can fingerboarding as an industry reach more people and find that middle ground between a tech deck setup and like a full pro setup the words you are saying are the words of wisdom. I hope a lot of, uh, what am I trying to say? A lot of the business owners in the fingerboard community listen to this show. I hope everybody can kind of listen to this and get on the same page of this idea of it doesn't have to be negative, you know, as long as you're providing people with a good value for their money. It's all about value, right? Not necessarily in terms of monetary, but a good product on a fair amount, I think would be wonderful because it's hard. It is hard. And it's also kind of about like, again, what's the goal? If your goal is get more people into fingerboarding and you make like super high-end artisanal boards, it's like you can even make a series of decks that you just break even on, but they're just decks to get the, this guy over here, like in his mind, he's like, dang, yeah. fingerboarding is kind of tight. Like you just need to jump in and say, here's $20. You can have this sick setup, get started. And then next thing you know, they're going to come back and they're going to get into it and go for like the high-end stuff. So again, it's a, it's recognizing your goal. And yes is getting more people into it for instance like sweets kandamas like sweets kandamas they got a kandama into target 15 dollars. i've seen it on sale for 13 and it's just like yo like you can get this dama with sticky paint dope shape in target walk in there walk out and then next thing you know you're going to website you're googling kandama you're seeing everything all the amazing stuff that sweets does you're seeing kandama you say you're seeing chrome you're seeing gt you're seeing soul you're seeing all of these dope brands and it just just opens your world to it so that exact of, of what you just said that i have two of them on my bookcase up back there actually and that's kind of what brought me back because i saw these and i was like wait a minute because i was like when i looked at these i was like this isn't your generic manufactured everybody knows a typical ken shape i was like this is an actual ken no and i was like 15 dollars. yeah and i bought one and i shred the absolute crap out of it but when i got it i felt kind of dirty because i used to nerd and like i would only use kandama usa because uh, uh you know rest in peace dave he was the guy that got me and the whole las vegas scene pretty much into into kandama but when i tried that sweets that 15 dollars sweets i tried it, i was like this is the best kandama i've ever age, felt man. because the shape was just so different it's completely different i was like the uh, and then I pulled out my old kandamas and I was like, the big cup is bigger. The, you know, it's, it has a sleeker curvature to it. I was like, what is going on? And I felt kind of dirty in that regards. Um, but to kind of put it into perspective for the people that are listening, it's the equivalent of going from like a low mold to an extremely high mold, like the shape of mm -hmm. it. It's, it's completely different. Yeah. And, and I think that like, 
Tech Tech's trying to bridge that gap with like their performance series right now. And it's like kind of there. Yeah, it's wood, it's ply, but like there's still like no bearings in the wheels and it's still the same trucks, man. Trucks. That's all I got to say about fingerboard setup. If someone was like, hey man, I got this much money. I'd be like, buy the crappiest deck you can get and put some good trucks on it and you'll have a setup. Because man, like going, oh, then that Kingpin drag, oh. Oh, it's like chalkboard. <laughs> so it's like, that's one thing that I always recommend people. I'm like, dude, get your money, get some good trucks and just whatever you got left over, just whatever deck you can get, man. Like just the trucks. And I think that like there is room like, and I'm not sure if it's like, maybe it's even just like pushing tech deck to like, yo, just even if it's $20, like the new ones are 15, it's like $20, but it has bearings. It's like, and just make a nicer deck, like whatever it is. I think that would push the envelope and push the audience for fingerboarding. When was it? it? It's funny that you mentioned that. I think it was 2010 or 2011, way back when, even probably before that. Tech Deck came out with these like pro series tech decks mm -hmm. that were wood and they did have bearing wheels and they did have the year mm -hmm. and they had every, they they had the schematics to do everything and they've done it before. But just giving the community what they want or filling the gap that is needed yeah. is, is kind of like, I think it was an expert skate series or something like that. Yeah. It was way back when, but you know, why, why'd you take it away? Why'd you put something good out and then take it away? It may have just missed the mark a little bit, you know? It's like, I mean, if you're Tech Deck, which is owned by Spin Master, if you're like this giant toy company, like the people at the top, they're not, this. the community isn't like the top priority, I guess. Like it's still like part of it. Like they still have to care about it because it is their business. Also, it's like, if they're investing all this money into these like other boards and it's just not quite hitting the mark, they'll pull it back. And I guess their newest one is their newest resurgence and trying that. But I just want to have a website that when my Kandama friends ask, yo, fingerboarding looks tight. I can say, here's a spot to go. And it's like $20 or something like that. And you can get like a good starter setup because I mean, again, like I send a lot of people to a lot of brands, especially with Kim's and with uh, Mongo. And it's like, it's, but for some reason, 45 for some people is still like a little too, too much, much, you know, because they're not sure about it. They're kind of on the edge that a lot of people do. A lot of people cop, but I still wish there was like something that was even more budget to where there's like zero excuses. Like there's no excuse. Like, and then come back, cop that 45, didn't get that deck, didn't get those BRTs, didn't get those wheels from whoever and then like just dive in i think that would really push the envelope on yeah. getting people into it so that's really good and hopefully somebody does it. and if they don't you know what who knows a year from now i'll do it yeah <laughs> also on the other edge it's like once you get into it like i don't have any problem with spending the money on these parts like people again one thing that always comes up i've listened i've heard it in the show about like oh like people talking about like 120 dollars for a fingerboard and then the outside saying like, that's how much, that's more than a real skateboard. And it's like, let's talk about how specialized this is. You know, it's like, this is a guy somewhere making these urethane wheels or like molding these or like yeah. 3D printing it. And like this deck is someone in their garage with the mold that they've made and then the tape and then the trucks. It's like, it's so specialized. So I think that's a beautiful part about the fingerboard world, I think, is that like everyone has a lot of respect for the artisanal yeah. fingerboard makers. And people aren't, they got no problem with with dropping money on decks and stuff like that. It's similar to the Kandama, especially the yo-yo world. Like a good yo-yo is 150, you know? It's like, I think that's one thing that's cool. Once you get in, you got no problem. But before you're in, you're looking at it, you're getting a little sticker shock. So it's kind of like, once you get in, peace out wallet, so. Yeah, you need that, whatever is there to kind of bridge the gap. And, and what you say is so true because as a deck maker myself, it's so hard to, to make handmade boards 
and keep it at a fair price point because of the amount of work that does go into it. And if you're just somebody like me, who's a one man band doing everything, trying to produce these at a high enough volume is just nearly impossible. But I think we need to have kind of a cultural shift within the community to be okay with these quote unquote mass produced products, but they still meet the standard that we're all looking for. I think a big thing for the community is realizing it might not be for you. Like not every product has to be made for you. You might be 10 years in shredding Kendama. Someone makes a beginner Kendama that's like super cheap. It might look wonky and crazy and have design you don't like. It's not for you, man. This Dama wasn't made for you. This Dama was made for this kid over here that's like looking at it saying, what's that? Boom, that's for them. So it's like there might be cheap China made stuff. It's not for you. You've got epic brands all over the place. <laughs> Those are for you. So uh, I think that's a big realization that that can happen too. Very true. Man, hey. we've been talking for <laughs> nearly an hour now. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but the last question I like to ask, and you've already touched on so many wise words of wisdom. For anybody listening to this, that's like, you know what? Jake Waynes is awesome. Essentially, if I was listening to this 10 years ago, what would you tell those people listening? Like, what's the one piece of advice you would give them to, to be successful in what they're trying to do? Just in general, for me, it's like setting realistic goals and set stepping stones. Like, have like your direct goals, have your big goal, like whatever your big goal is, but keep that as your big goal and have your stepping stone goals in front of you and have them be incredibly obtainable. You know, it's like just start small and then work your way up, you know? And I think that's kind of one of the biggest things that holds people back is they'll be like, they'll get a fingerboard or condom and like, yo, I'm gonna get sponsored. And it's like, whoa, pump your brakes, dude. How about you learn how to do a few tricks first? Let's have some fun with it and see where it goes. And if it's something like you want to start making your own decks or even making your own kendamas, it's like, ask yourself, like, why do I want to do it? And what can I bring to this industry that isn't already here? And how will I benefit it? Because once you find a way to benefit everybody, everyone will benefit you um, and help you get there. But that's also about being true to yourself and being true to like what your goal is. And there's so much needed in all of these industries. So there's lots of opportunity. And it's just a matter of finding that, addressing it, and then getting the support and going for it and not being afraid to cut your losses if it's not working out. Don't be afraid to say, nah, man, this is like causing me too much stress or I'm just like, it's not getting the traction I, I needed. I mean, you can either try a different route or you can just say, that's nah, cool. I'll go do something else because I feel like a lot of people will get stuck in that rut. And then the longer you're in it and you're not enjoying it, the harder it is to get out of it. And then next thing you know, you're just, you're just grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> so the second it stops becoming fun, man, just say that was fun and I'm out. That's my biggest piece of advice. Wonderful knowledge you just spilled there. All right, Jake, why don't you let everybody know, anybody that's listening, the socials, the website, where they can find you if they want to look you up. Absolutely. So on Instagram, hit me up. I'm at the Ken Garden, like T-H-E-K-E-N Garden. And if you want to check out all of our kendamas, it's Grain Theory Official on Instagram. We're always dropping new stuff and having a lot of fun with kendamas still. And check out our team. Go to our page. We only follow our team. So if you just go to our who we follow, you'll be able to check out all of our players we have an extremely like eclectic group of styles that you guys can go through and be inspired to with with kendama if you want a kendama go get one if you want a fingerboard go get one have some fun and uh yeah keep shredding jake it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor talking to you today thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me and yeah can't wait to fingerboard with you and play some kendama soon straight up all right man until the <laughs> next one stay safe all right much love i hope you enjoyed this episode of the finger space podcast thanks for skating by and don't forget to nose bonk that subscribe button and dark slide on over to our discord server 
This episode was produced by Fingerspace Co. and hosted by Nostalgia FB. Big thanks to all guests and listeners.